From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and this has been the week that British politics lurched back into life. Later on, we'll be discussing the fallout of the budget, the resignation of Ian Duncan Smith, and whether the Labour Party are now ready to get back in the game. We'll also be continuing our ongoing attempt to make sense of what's been happening in the United States. My special guest is Jim Nocte, former presenter of the Today programme and a long-time observer of American presidential elections. He tells me why this one is the wildest he's seen yet. I cannot think of language like this being used against any candidate since George Wallace ran on a segregationist ticket for the Democratic nomination in 1968, and even then the language was more restrained. And how a Donald Trump rally was for him. The atmosphere is its quite physical. It's, it's very aggressive. The language is completely unforgiving. And you sense that there is a, a man who's running a campaign that is just a sort of massive bulldozer. Stay tuned for that and a whole lot more. First, I'm joined by our regular panellists, Helen Thompson and Finbar Livesey. As has now become something of a weekly ritual, we've got some more results to digest. Arizona and Utah last night. On the Republican side, every state now counts because the question is, will Trump get to the 1237, the magic number of delegates he needs to avoid a contested convention? And this is going to run and run. Nothing is settled. Last night, Trump won handsomely in Arizona. He got absolutely hammered in Utah. Bernie Sanders also won handsomely in Utah. Helen, what are the good people of Utah going to do in the general election? It's sometimes said that Utah is the one state that the Republicans can count on come hell or high water. It doesn't matter who they put up there. Utahans, if that's the word, will vote Republican. Maybe not this time if it's Trump. It's going to be very difficult for the Republican voters in Utah. They're used to voting Republican, but they clearly are not going to be able to vote for Trump as the Republican candidate. The fact that Trump went out of his way to insult Romney about his Mormon faith is going to make that process even more difficult than um, it already was. I think in the end, a lot will turn what Romney himself does in relation to Trump as the nominee. Is in the end Romney going to get on board with it unenthusiastically, or is he going to back a third party candidate? Finbar, we are starting to get a sense of what a Trump candidacy in the autumn might be like and that people are looking ahead. Trump himself has started to give some slightly more, not presidential exactly, but wannabe presidential interviews. He's revealed his foreign policy team. Surprise, surprise, no one's ever heard of any of them. It would have been much more surprising if it turned out he was being advised by Brent Scrowcroft or Henry Kissinger or whoever. The point of the Trump candidacy is that you're not meant to have heard of any of his advisors because he's the anti-establishment candidate. Is he getting anywhere with this? Is this just kind of froth for now? Does it matter that he's starting to begin this sort of very slow pivot back towards what you might call respectable politics? I think in terms of the primary voting, it's going to matter not a jot because the voting public aren't looking at the list of people. They're not going to be impacted by, as you say, the names are unimpressive bar a leader of the 82nd Airborne who then went on to Blackwater. Where it's going to matter is after the primaries, if he is the nominee, because into the main run and into the actual election itself, then he has to actually try to be presidential. And every attempt that he makes now to be presidential fails. He had a sit-down meeting with the editorial board of the Washington Post, and I would encourage everybody to go and read the transcript, because the answers are, to be very polite, 
interesting in the extreme. Say more. When asked on several issues, he wouldn't give clear, straight answers, which is not a surprise. But he obviously didn't have any of the detail in his head. And he clearly thought that just by saying it would be bigger, better, more winningy, he could get away with the answers. In the room again, he was aggressive towards some of the female editorial staff. All of the things which are not presidential and which don't provide any detail, no policy, and which don't give him any uplift were there in spades. For me, that transcript is the clearest indication of how unfit he is to be president. And in a way, it was an interview like that that destroyed Sarah Palin and perhaps also fatally undermined John McCain's candidacy in 2008. But it was in the autumn. It wasn't in the primary season. It was at the point in the cycle when people were thinking of Sarah Palin. She could be a heartbeat away from the presidency. And her complete ignorance of foreign affairs, her flakiness around what you might think of some central issues of presidential politics, hobbled her completely. So Trump has that barrier to overcome. He's also given us an indication of one of his attack lines on Hillary Clinton, if, if it comes to that, which is going to be, I think Chris used this phrase a few weeks ago, I don't know if it's dog whistle or foghorn, but it's going to be about her health. He thinks she lacks the stamina. It's not just about age. He's trying to suggest that she is covering up some serious health issue. As he says, she disappears for a few days at a time. Where does she go? What's she doing? Why isn't she around? How can someone like that be president? Helen, you're probably more suspicious than the rest of us, or you have a willingness sometimes to think that things are uh, less straightforward than they seem. Is, is Hillary vulnerable on this score? I think that Hillary is partly vulnerable on the health story. And there was a lot of talk in the months leading up to her finally saying that she was going to run for the Democratic nomination about whether she was well enough to run after some of the health issues that she'd had when she was Secretary of State. But I I think it's only one of the issues that he has to play with with her. And the other line that he's attacked her on this week on Twitter is about corruption, essentially saying that she's been corrupt for most of her professional adult life. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about that from him, particularly in relation to the Clinton Foundation. He wants to give the impression that he is sitting on a minefield of stuff and he can just deploy it as and when. My own feeling is that he isn't. But if you were a Democrat, would you be worried that... Because the one thing you know about Trump is if he is sitting on it, he'll use it. I mean, with with other candidates, you might hope that uh, decency would prevail. That's not a sensible wish in this case. Would you be worried? I think it depends on what you call information. He's sitting on, I think, a minefield of allegations, which is not the same thing as information. You can see that particularly in his relationship with Roger Stone, who is somebody who's written an expose book about the Clintons, both in relation to corruption and in relation to Bill's relations with, with women. I wouldn't doubt at all that if it came to it that Trump would be willing to use those allegations against Hillary. I also would push back a bit on the idea that foreign policy is just a liability for him in the sense that on the one side he comes over as someone who isn't particularly knowledgeable about aspects of international politics. At the same time he has a clear line which is against the neoconservative position, it's against interventions in the Middle East and particularly in the light of what's happened in Brussels. I think some of this is going to play and in some sense I think the most interesting thing of the week was actually the talk that he gave to APAC, the America-Israel PAC, in which he actually, for the first time, used a scripted speech rather than talking off the cuff. And on that, he actually gave, though, a quite conventional set of 
positions, not least blaming much of the world's terrorism on Iran, which is a significant departure from the positions that he's been taking up to now, which is basically to be very critical of Saudi Arabia and less critical of Iran. Finbar, he also gave an interview after the Brussels attacks yesterday, in which he said, as you might imagine, that this is the kind of thing that if he was president, he would do everything in his power to prevent. But he also said fairly strikingly that this was an argument for his argument in favour of the use of torture, that if Abdul Salam, the mastermind allegedly of the Paris attacks, had been forced to divulge what he knew, this attack could have been prevented. And as so often with Trump, you know people are thinking these things, it sort of takes your breath away when you hear him say it, but you just don't know. I don't know. Maybe this is not a masterstroke, but the kind of thing that that does propel his candidacy way beyond what seems possible at the time. This this could have a lot of appeal to the American public. I think because it's an attack on foreign soil rather than on American soil, it won't have the same impact. If this had been another version of 9-11, a significant attack within the borders of America, I think you'd be right. Given that it's far away across the sea, the attacks don't have as much play into the American psyche across the American news channels. It has to be said, though, that uh, Trump has no basis to make this statement. Um, There's no information that says that uh, cells working in Europe or other places are connected in any way, shape or form. And also the initial indications from Brussels are that Abdesalam was actually working with the authorities. So this grand pronouncement, this statement he can make and nobody can prove him right or wrong is purely grandstanding. Helen, we're going to come on to British politics a bit later and talk about some of the things that have been going on here this week. But a a last question and and a quick answer. These questions are almost impossible to answer anyway. But the Brussels attack very quickly got caught up in arguments about Brexit. There was then an immediate counter reaction on Twitter and elsewhere, people saying it's far too early to make politics out of this. But we know in politics, it's never too early to make politics out of anything. Do you think that this kind of incident does in a more domestic context, in our domestic context, have any enduring political significance for the EU referendum? I'd be sceptical about that on the EU referendum here unless something happened again and it was on British soil. I think, though, in the American case, that actually that it does have mileage and that you can see, if you look at the trajectory of Trump's support through the autumn, that it actually went up quite significantly in the aftermath of the Paris and San Bernardino attacks. Thank you to Helen and to Finbar. Jim Nochte has been covering American presidential politics for the BBC since 1988. And he's been back there this spring to take the temperature on the ground as the current contest has been reaching fever pitch. He joined me earlier to tell me about what he found. I started by asking him how the craziness he's seen this time round compares to what he's seen in the past. It is the wildest and weirdest, I think, that anyone uh, has seen. There's nothing really to match this in the modern era. I was thinking the other night about candidates who have attacked each other in the terms that Republicans are now attacking Trump. And I cannot think of language like this being used against any candidate since George Wallace ran on a segregationist ticket for the Democratic nomination in 1968. And even then, the language was more restrained. You know, after all, Mitt Romney, the candidate in 2012, has called him a fraud and a con man. Ted Cruz, who is challenging Trump, obviously, for the nomination, has said he's vulgar 
course, a man whose speeches you wouldn't want your children to hear, a man who has a corrupt relationship with big government. Someone wrote a piece the other day saying he behaves like a mafia gangster. Now, the way he suggested that there might be riots at the convention if he had the biggest number of delegates but not a majority on the first ballot, she said it was like him saying, you've got a nice little convention here, pity if anything happened to it, you know, like a New York mobster. And yet... Here is a man who came from nowhere, no connections with the party of any substance, no elected office of any kind, who has stirred up the kind of anger that goes far beyond the normal disaffection with Washington, which is part of any electoral cycle in the States. During the primary campaign, a poll was taken of general voters across the state, not those who were going to participate in the Republican primary, and it found that two-thirds of them expressed support for Trump's position that there should be a temporary ban on Muslims entering the United States. Now, that is a proposal which, in any recent electoral cycle, would have been off the map of normal politics. It would have been the sort of thing that an extreme candidate might say, uh, but not somebody who was expecting to get the nomination. The Mexican Wall, which, as we know famously at all Trump rallies, he says the Mexicans will pay for it. It doesn't explain how, when or why. But anyway, nobody's seen anything like this before. And that's why a lot of very senior Republicans, many of them conservative stalwarts of the conservative movement, the intellectual conservative movement, are tearing their hair out because they don't believe Trump is a conservative, first of all. They believe, as Ted Cruz says, that he'll say anything. Uh, they also believe that he's in favour of big government, which they hate, of course, as long as he's in charge of it. So they don't know what to do about it. Uh, moderate Republicans, to use that inadequate term, but anyway, people like Mitt Romney uh, believe that he is a nightmare candidate who will lose to Hillary Clinton, assuming she is the nominee, which is a near certainty. And so they're all wondering what to do about it. And all they can come up with is, well, look, even if we don't like Ted Cruz, this is what Mitt Romney is saying, for example, uh, we need to get him enough delegates to deny Trump a first ballot majority and then throw the convention open in Cleveland in July and find somebody else. And when Mitt Romney says that, you wonder if there's a bubble coming out of his head with a question mark in it, thinking it could be me. Well, we don't know about that. But there's an enormous problem inside the Republican Party because Trump has stirred up Huge excitement, but many of them believe that he is a loser. So it is the strangest campaign of recent times. There's no question about that. And the the, the insults, the, the mud, it's been coming both ways. They've been saying that about Trump, and, of course, he's been giving back just as much as he's been getting. And American politics has always had this tradition right back to the beginning. The, the, the Adams-Jefferson campaign was about as nasty as anything in the history of electoral politics. But what's so striking now is, as you say, it's just so unbridled and on the surface. I mean, the, the Bushes, the, the Republican establishment, they weren't above getting their hands pretty dirty, but they were much better at concealing their tracks. What's so astonishing to me is just how everything has been laid bare. It's like someone's ripped the veneer off American politics and let you see what it looks like behind the scenes. I think that's absolutely true. I was looking at some footage from the 1960 Democratic Convention where John F. Kennedy was nominated, of course, and the fight with LBJ, Johnson particularly, was, was pretty brutal. Johnson was never going to win the nomination, but he sure as heck tried to stop Kennedy. And if you look at some of the caucus meetings at the convention, it's pretty raw politics. And if you look at the language they're using about each other, it's almost school debating society stuff. You're right that 
everything under the surface, which was pretty dark and black, and you look what the Kennedys did to Hubert Humphrey in that campaign in the West Virginia primary, but to see it out in the open, the hatred around Trump, it's something I've never seen. And, you know, I've not been around for that long, but a lot of people I know who've watched American politics since the 60s say that they have never seen anything like this and never felt anything like this. And Romney made a statement the other day in which he accused Trump directly of inciting violence at his campaign rallies. Now, I don't think it comes more serious than that, really. And these are people, Mitt Romney, Ted Cruz, John Kasich, Governor of Ohio, candidate in this campaign, who are going to be lining up, presumably, behind a Trump ticket in the fall if he is the nominee, which it increasingly looks as if he may be. Now, how do they go out and campaign for a man whom they've described as a fraud and a con man with a corrupt relationship to government? I agree. That's the thing that looks so extraordinary is that normally you can see how people can row back. People in American primary campaigns, candidates, they have to go out there and then they come back to the centre. And, and now it's like a cartoon. They've sort of gone so far out there that they're over the edge of the cliff and you, you can't see the way back. Well, that's right, except uh, the point that Ted Cruz makes about Donald Trump, that if he were nominated, in September he would start talking like uh, a Democratic candidate if, if he thought it would help him because he is simply after votes. And that's what drives the Conservatives, the people in the Conservative movement. And, of course, as we all know, Conservative in American terms is one that we've got to be very careful of because it means something quite different from the way that it's generally used in this country. But the Conservatives are in a terrible pickle. And I wonder whether, if Trump is nominated, there could be a third candidate uh, William Crystal, who edits a journal called The Weekly Standard, which is a kind of vade mecum of all conservatives of that stripe in the United States, he is saying that Trump is absolutely unacceptable as a president. Mitt Romney has said he's unelectable. Jeb Bush has said he's disqualified himself. What do people do? May well be, if they think Trump is going down in flames, that it's the only thing to do from the point of view of principled conservatism. That is one of the prospects. The other, of course, is this talk of a, an open convention or a brokered convention in Cleveland. Well, I mean, you know that people talk about this all the time. It very, very seldom happens. You can't have contests as you had in, let's say, 1960 with the Democrats, famously with Reagan and Jerry Ford in 1976, which Ford won at Kansas City by a whisker, having invited the Mississippi delegation to spend the weekend at the White House, which is a useful little thing you have up your sleeve if you're a sitting president. But in terms of a convention that goes off the rails, well, it's a very long time. 1940, when Wendell Wilkie became the Republican nominee, came from nowhere, a man, incidentally with no background in politics or the military, probably the only presidential candidate for major party in 150 years with that profile. If Trump is nominated, apart from Wilkie, he will be the only candidate with no elective experience and no senior you know, Eisenhower-type experience in the military. It's quite a thought. Anyway, the 40 campaign, and then you go back, I suppose, to the smoke-filled room in the Blackstone Hotel, Chicago, 1920, and Warren Harding, although you may know more about that particular episode than I can recall. And, of course, the stakes are so high. That's the other extraordinary thing. We're not just, in a sense, talking about the presidency. Donald Trump could 
bring down the Republican Party in the sense that they lose their chance to nominate a candidate for the Supreme Court. They, they, they lose the Senate. They, they lose the House of Representatives. I mean, the stakes, in a sense, couldn't be higher for the Conservatives. The stakes are very high. And when Conservatives particularly, but Democrats talk like this as well, say that this is a turning point election, you know, somebody says that every time and sometimes it's more true than others. It really is true this time. After the death of uh, Antonin Scalia, the Supreme Court justice the other day, the whole balance of the Supreme Court was thrust into the public domain again. The next president is going to have the power, probably, to appoint two or three Supreme Court justices, which in the reading of the Constitution could tilt social policy in the United States one way or the other decisively. And... We're talking here about health care. We're talking about, obviously, gay, gay marriage, but that's almost been settled. We're talking about a host of areas where, on the conservative side of the argument, they still hope to make a dent in what you would call the liberal drift over the last 40 years. That will be over if the Republicans lose the White House, and particularly, as you say, if the Democrats take the Senate. Now, it's a pretty small swing that's required... Uh, in a number of seats, uh, let's say six or eight seats where the Republicans could lose the Senate, they fear greatly that if Trump is the nominee, some of their Senate candidates and sitting senators will go down in flames and hand the House to the Democrats. Now, the House of Representatives is a much bigger target uh, in the sense it's a more difficult target for the Democrats. But if Trump is the nominee, a lot of Republicans feel it's not beyond their grasp. And that would change the whole drift of American politics and, of course, have, have a huge impact on us because of the posture that America took to the world and its own internal organisation and social policy and the, the drift of its um, economic policy and so on. So you're right. I mean, there are huge things at stake. And the one question is, is Trump now unstoppable? Big win in Arizona this week, a winner-take-all primary. The argument is that if Cruz can get enough in the states coming up where it's still done on a proportional basis, then he will be able to deny Trump a majority of delegates on the first ballot in Cleveland, and the game is open. Well, hmm, you need 1,237 votes on the first ballot to be the nominee. Um... If Trump goes to Cleveland with a thousand delegates, which he almost certainly will, which he almost certainly will, if Trump goes with a thousand delegates, I invite you to imagine what would happen on the floor of the convention if there were a concerted effort to try to stop him. Is this the most divided that you've seen American politics? Because the thing that strikes me as well, if you think back to Obama's famous speech at the 2004 convention, the one that more or less launched his bid for the presidency four years later, where he spoke about blue states and red states and healing the country and so on. The assumption was that was the fault line in American politics. It was red states versus blue states. But you look at the primaries on both sides here, and the divisions between the two sides are, if anything, greater than between them. As you said, Trump won in Arizona, but he got absolutely hammered in Utah. Utah and Arizona are next door to each other. I know Utah is a slightly outlier state, but the extent to which the conservatives hate him and Trump supporters adore him, that kind of rift right through one of the great parties, and then a, a, something similar with Clinton and Sanders, Clinton in the South, Sanders in the Rust Belt. The country just seems divided top to bottom, east to west. I think that's true, and I think that it's difficult not to conclude 
that the reason for these divisions and the reason for the kind of language that we've had, which you alluded to earlier, which takes us into different territory, is the culture war that has been waged for the last 30 years. The disappearance of the idea that, for example, the Senate is a deliberative body, as the founding fathers wanted it to be. It is now seen as an absolute battleground where no quarter is given, where somebody who disagrees with you can be described easily as evil. I mean, you listen to a Ted Cruz speech talking about Obama, and he believes that Obama has a plan to dismantle the United States as the Founding Fathers represented it in the Constitution. He doesn't just say that, he believes it. And I think if you remember that people uh, raised with that kind of rhetoric from the 80s, which Reagan, of course, didn't really use himself. He assailed big government, but he was avuncular in style, and that was part of his political genius. People raised in that ideological firestorm find it very difficult to let go, whether it's intra-party or cross-party. I hate liberals. I hate conservatives. Once it's out there, it's very difficult to restore a kind of sense of normality to politics, particularly if a lot of people on the right, for example, only listen to shock jock radio, wild stuff on the airwaves, which actually would be much of it illegal in this country under broadcasting rules, and only watch interviews conducted on Fox News because people on Fox News, the commentators on Fox News, do tell you that if you read the New York Times, there's a fair chance that your mind will be poisoned, so they don't. And the consequence of this is that you have a politics of anger, which bizarrely, from a true conservative point of view in the States, has produced Donald Trump. He is Mr. Angry. Somebody said to me in Washington the other day, he is the love child of the 24-hour news cycle and corporate greed. Everything that's happened has produced the figure of Trump. Now, many of the people who've engaged with such relish in the culture war of language, of laying the landscape bare with insults and ideological division. Now look on with horror at what it has produced. But what it has produced is Donald Trump. And that's the problem. How do you get back to something which is different? Um, I mean, Hillary Clinton is a divisive figure as well. I mean, we haven't talked about her, but she's divisive in a slightly different way. I mean, there's a large number of people who, who simply will never trust her, who don't like her, who think they take her back to a Clinton era that they don't like. And she has got, you know, as they say in the parlance of American politics, very big negative numbers. You only have to look at the students who supported Bernie Sanders and still do. They will overwhelmingly, I guess, support Hillary Clinton if she's the nominee. But their dislike of her is because they see her as somebody from the past. You know, I was at Bernie Sanders' victory party in New Hampshire and Manchester and uh, on the night of the primary, which... Uh, he won and I looked around the room all the students who'd been running his campaign and I realised that quite a number of them hadn't been born when Hillary Clinton became first lady in 1992 so to them you know she's quite a she's quite a sort of wrinkly figure really I mean she's not 70 yet but to them she's very wrinkly she doesn't look it but she is. In a way what's so extraordinary is that as you say, Hillary Clinton is, by any standards, an enormously divisive figure. But it's the kind of divisiveness that people who have long experience of American politics feel like they can handle. Almost, it's they might almost feel a kind of nostalgia for that. They understand it. 
And, tr- and Trump is off the charts. He's just off the charts. I mean, heavens above, we've, we've always had aggressiveness in American politics. You know, go back to Nixon-Humphrey in 1968. I mean, obviously, Nixon were governed in 72, but these were rough arguments, and, and people use rough language that are low, low blows and so on. And that's taken for granted. I mean, there is a huge amount of rough and tumble. But, but with Trump, it's not rough and tumble. I mean, this is real raw gut politics and you know if you go to a trump rally the atmosphere is it's quite physical it's it's very aggressive the language is completely unforgiving and you sense that there is a, a man who's running a campaign that is just a sort of massive bulldozer that is just devoted to removing anything in its path and it's caused such consternation that his opponents are driven to use language about him which is quite unbelievable but as Trump himself says you know he said in the after the Florida primary that they'd spent 40 million dollars making negative ads about him these were negative ads by Republicans to Republicans saying don't vote for Trump and as Trump says, he just shrugged, threw his arms out and said, oh, my numbers went up. Now, the big argument is whether that which you can harness during a primary campaign when people are really sticking a label on a figure. Yeah, I like him. I like the sound of him. I like her. Yeah, that's the way I think I'll go. Compare that with the position in the autumn when the two candidates are facing each other, possibly in debate, although there's a question as to whether Hillary Clinton would debate Donald Trump. Coming up to November, the question is, who is going to be commander of chief, commander in chief of the United States in a dangerous world six weeks from now? As you know, there's an old saying in American politics that a lot of people don't decide how to vote until after the Baseball World Series is over, which is in the third week of October. And here we are getting excited about Donald Trump in April or in March even. Now, there's a long, long way to go. And Trump's problem is that the serious Republicans who've been around this course year after year after year don't believe he can win. Now, if they don't believe it, I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but if they don't believe it, if he is nominated, what do they do about it? Do they sit on their hands? Do a lot of them out there vote for Hillary Clinton? I think a lot will, actually. But do they start thinking that if it is as principled as that, there maybe should be a third candidate? I don't know. I think really this year anything is possible. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And of course, the, the other phrase that people use once we get to the fall is an October surprise. You never know. Once you're in a two-horse race, or maybe it'll be a three-horse race, but I tend to agree with you. It's quite hard to see how it would work. Once you're in a two-horse race, anything could happen because it just takes an accident to befall the other horse. And even if your candidate is unelectable, he wins. Well, the, the accident that Republicans dream about, of course, is um, an indictment of Hillary Clinton on the question of the emails. Now, let's be clear about this. The emails haven't thrown up 
anything that suggests there was a serious breach of national security, the fact that she had a private email server in her home, the fact that Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, two former national security advisers and secretaries of state, have admitted that they did the same, uh, gives her quite good cover. She admits it wasn't why, she probably shouldn't have done it. But the idea that she was sending secret messages to Putin, which is what you'll hear on some radio stations, is a little absurd. Now, there is an FBI investigation into this because there has to be. The question of whether the Justice Department would lay charges against a presidential candidate is, I mean, you only have to state the question to realise what a serious move it would be. If it was a technical breach of the rules, I cannot believe there would be an effort to indict her because the consequences would be so serious. And the Department of Justice, you know, sitting there in the middle of an election year, is that what it's going to do? Particularly, dare I say it, if the consequence might be to elect Donald Trump to the presidency. I find it hard to believe that that will happen because we don't have any evidence at the moment there's a solid basis for it. But it could. And, you know, she's 69. She's going to be 70 quite soon. Uh, she's not a young woman. She's under a lot of pressure and stress. So, you know, things happen to people. Donald Trump is about the same age. You're right. We just don't know where we're going to be in nine months' time. I think the problem for the Republicans, though, is they suspect that the chances are they're going to be fighting what will be, with Trump as the nominee, the most difficult campaign imaginable. A man who's got no background in the party, who doesn't care about the party, who talks about the Trump organisation, and that's it, running a kind of wild, madcap campaign of his own, where the strategy is decided by him, implemented by him, and no one else matters. If he does become the nominee, it will be a campaign like no other in modern times in that sense. Thank you very much to Jim Nochte, someone who has seen it all. He'll be continuing to cover this amazing election for the BBC through the conventions and beyond. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. Now back to Helen and Finbar. Last week, we discussed the budget on the morning it was due to be delivered. And I think it's fair to say none of us foresaw or maybe even could have foreseen what was going to happen. A resignation from the cabinet, a rapid retreat by the chancellor from his proposed cuts to benefits for the disabled. And Osborne himself and the government more broadly in deeper trouble probably than they've been at any point since the last election. In a moment, we're going to come on to the question of whether Labour is in a fit state to take advantage of Tory disarray. But first of all, is this really disarray for the Tory party? Finbar, how bad do you think this is for the government? I think it is really bad for the government, but I don't think that they realise how bad it is for the government. I think that you have a position now without the Lib Dems to unify them in some ways. The Lib Dems were, in essence, the enemy within. And the Tories were in coalition and could cohere themselves to say, we have to keep these principles and we make some trades. Without the Lib Dems in place, all of the old rifts come back. Put that together with the fact that they believe Labour are essentially off the pitch and there is no effective opposition, we can have an argument and it has no consequences. And then finally add in the EU referendum, the removal of cabinet collective responsibility, and now the taste of dissent. I think all bets are off in that sense, but I don't think that they realise that. I think that in many parts of the Conservative Party, they still think that they're invulnerable. Because what I'm struck by with the current Conservative leadership 
is the extent to which they behave as though the normal rules of politics still apply. They are quite conservative. I think David Cameron is quite conservative. Um, and though there's all this turmoil going on, not just in the United States, in Europe, in this country too, lots of the old rules about politics seem to be up in the air now. You don't know what's going to happen next, but the Tory party behaves as though in the long run things will revert back to the norm. Helen, is that a kind of classic Tory complacency, do you think? Or are they actually probably the only people who are keeping their heads while everyone else is losing theirs? I think that it's classic Tory complacency in the sense that they are being very complacent. But I think that if you look historically at the Tory party, that it wasn't complacent about these kind of things, particularly in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. That's why it actually did well, because it actually did terrify itself about some of the social, economic and political change that was going on around it and try to be responsive to it. What's striking about Cameron and Osborne is that they don't seem to understand that part of Tory statecraft. I was also struck, to draw a much more recent analogy, by the willingness of Osborne not to admit that he was wrong, and he certainly didn't apologise, but to backtrack on the thing that caused the trouble. And if you just go back to the Blair-Brown years, Gordon Brown would do anything but change a budget once he delivered it. It could be a bloodbath all around him, but he would hold the line because he would not admit weakness. And he had some pretty shambolic budgets in his time, certainly ones that unravelled. But part of the problem for the Labour Party is that Brown would never admit a mistake. Now, Cameron and Osborne, and Osborne certainly this week, has shown himself to be relatively pragmatic. Um, he has adjusted quite quickly. Is this a sign of weakness in or a sign of strength? I mean, is this part of what makes Osborne a more skilled politician, or is he just flailing around? I think it's a sign of overconfidence. I think what he's saying is, I am in control, I am the Chancellor, I'm the prospective next leader of this party, and we made a small mistake, which I won't apologise for, and we're just going to get on with it. Stop bothering us with this. When you took look at the raw numbers, uh, the PIPs number was about 1.6 billion, the welfare changes overall were about 4 billion. That's half of 1% of total government spending. And so at that level, he just shrugs his shoulders in many, many ways. The problem underneath it, though, for him is that he had to do a lot of dancing to get back to having a surplus at the end of the parliament and only a surplus of 10 billion, which is tiny. It is a major rounding error. Now with this, again, tiny, but it's all at that margin of the surplus. So the forward projections are not stable in any way, shape or form. And finally, commentators are talking about them in that way. These are just numbers in a spreadsheet. They will change. All of the OBR projections have constantly been revised. And to use Rob Choate's great phrase after uh, the reassessments that happened at the end of last year, the sofa giveth and the sofa taketh away. When they found that extra money, it was a surprise to everybody. But guess what? The projections can change again. So I think he is expressing massive overconfidence. And Helen, it does also tap into what you talked about last week, which is the problem of the mixed message, which is on the one hand, everything has to be done because there is very little room for manoeuvre here. You know, we, we, we're on the edge of this cliff, and unless we run a very, very tight ship, that's a mixed metaphor, but who cares, we're going over. On the other hand, when we make a mistake, we just undo it, because it doesn't matter. These are very small figures, these are rounding errors. And that is a problem, I agree with you. That is a real problem for the narrative that they're trying to construct, which is, we have to do these things, but when we mess it up, it doesn't matter, because we've got wriggle room. I think that the mixed message has been a problem going back to 2012 and that they got away with it in the election where they were giving off a terrible mixed message as well in terms of saying that we need to have fiscal austerity and at the same time here's a, a grand list of spending and 
increases and tax cuts that we're going to promise you at the same time, they got away with it because of Labour's position. But the problem they've got now is, is that they've got someone from inside the cabinet, a Conservative and not a Liberal Democrat as it was before, who's come out and said out loud, look, what you say you don't mean. And that is Ian Duncan Smith did that interview. This is the interview he gave to Andrew Marr and other things that he said as well. Is that the kind of thing that's going to do lasting damage? Because these things do have a tendency to have a pretty limited shelf life. Will it will 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 in twenty twenty or even in twenty seventeen anyone remember what Ian Duncan Smith said to Andrew Marr? I don't think it's a particulars about what Ian Duncan Smith said. It's about a reputation for something. And if you look at what happened to the Conservative Party in the early nineteen nineties, they trashed their reputation for economic competence in one day on Black Wednesday in nineteen ninety two. And it took them, you could argue, until this election to recover from that moment. Now Ian Duncan Smith himself might be forgotten, but the fact that a Conservative said out loud that this party only cares about the rich, that sticks. So this then raises the question which we have been begging to this point, which is, if the government is in trouble, is there an opposition capable of taking advantage of this? And that brings us back to something that we've not really talked about since the first episode of this podcast, which is the Corbyn problem. We decided that it was time to go out onto the streets of Cambridge and ask some people here in a town that is, I think relatively sympathetic both to Labour, we have a sitting Labour MP, and also probably to Jeremy Corbyn, whether six months into Corbyn's leadership, do they think he's up to the job? Uh, I think people have been wondering that for a very long time. I just don't think that he's really electable. I think he's a very sincere man, but uh, I think that he's just far, far too far to the left to really appeal to the general electorate. I have no idea and I wouldn't vote for him. So does that answer your question? You wouldn't vote for him? No. Why not? Why? He's living in the past, and I'm old. Uh, he's younger than I am, and probably he doesn't remember the 1950s. And we need, we need young people. Starting to wonder. Um, I think people have had doubts since he got the position, really. I think, you know, there's obvious that there's disruptions in his party, although he was voted in, you know, that some of his colleagues are unhappy with the approach he's taking. Um, I think people probably are. I think people agree with his views very much and his heart's in the right place. But I think a lot of people would like him to be a bit more aggressive and a bit stronger. Perhaps he needs a bit more anger and passion. I think there's a lot I respect about him. I respect his honesty and his openness. And I think it's a refreshing change to see somebody... Um, take that stance, but he's not going to succeed, unfortunately. I was really disillusioned with Labour, kind of pre-election with Miliband's Labour. Yeah, I think he's kind of consistently challenged Cameron, um, which is kind of what he needs to do at this point. No, I don't believe he is. Why not? I think he's uh, he just lost touch with the public generally. He's doing all right. He's not responding to the fact that the Conservative Party is about to go into a bloody civil war and he needs to seize his opportunity to actually form effective opposition yeah. instead of sitting around doing nothing. Yeah. So what's your sort of hope then for Labour now, or is there none? I'd rather, obviously, I'd rather the party didn't split up, so I, I guess I'd prefer they picked a different leader, but yeah. it's not going to end well either way, I don't think. What would you say among your peers the sort of impression is of Corbyn? Do you think he's been a disappointment or not? Um, I mean, there was a lot of hype in the beginning. I've not encountered anybody who loved him and then has done a U-turn and now hates him or anything. So, 
you yeah, say. Yeah, no, I agree. My friends that voted for him are still very much on his side, so has yet to disappoint them. No, because I, I just think he's lost everybody else that's around him and he needs somebody stronger and slightly better known, I think, than him. I think Cameron will come through in the end and uh, you know, the Conservatives will rally around him and George Osborne will find his place again and forward they go. Is he smart for the job? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like, he's, he's having a, everyone else is just having a giggle. He's all got up against the big bullies, really. It's not like necessarily all the points on the other side are necessarily bad. It's just, like, the attitude is right now. It's, it's a bit of a joke. What is it about his attitude that you like? Well, it's just, like, strong, isn't it? He's just, like, sort of, like, sort of more to the point. Yeah, I think it's really good, like, arguing against um, the Tory points at the moment. It's really cool to see. I think... <laughs> They've got the leader they perhaps deserve at the moment, or they want at the moment. But whether that's actually the right thing for Labour, I'm not sure. And a quick reminder of what Jackie Ashley told us in that first episode of this podcast when we asked her about the prospects that Labour have for replacing Corbyn if he isn't up to it. There's all sorts of different things being plotted by different degrees of moderate MPs, but I don't think, and I think this is what should worry them, that is not one coherent plan around one coherent or even two or three coherent potential other leaders at the moment. Everyone is doing their own little thing. There's groups in Cambridge, there's groups in London, there's groups up in the north, all plotting different things and all thinking they're the future, and no one can agree as to who the next leader is. And I think that's really a part of their problem. It's all very well saying Jeremy's hopeless, but actually Jeremy does have quite a bit of charisma and there is no one on the other side yet that one can think of. I know some people think Tristram Hunt is the answer, I'm not sure. Dan Jarvis, I'm not sure. Keir Starmer, again, I'm not sure. Lots of quite bright women but not one in particular that you think is going to actually lead the way. So there is just nobody and David Miliband may well think he will sail back to save the Labour Party but I don't see that happening either. Finbar, the newspaper commentators have this week, even by their standards, I think, been exceptionally scathing about Corbyn's performance in the Commons, where he failed to mention Ian Duncan Smith's resignation. It was said to be an open goal. He didn't just miss the goal. He picked the ball up and he threw it off the pitch. But I think we heard there, speaking to voters, the big gulf that still exists between what people who see him day in and day out, particularly performing in the Commons, feel about his competence and the way it's coming across to the voters. I don't think that actually his failures in the Commons yet have really shifted people's preconceptions. As we get closer to a general election, that might happen. But for now, we've got a really acute version of the problem we've had all along, which is the people who work with him and who aren't his supporters, I think have almost universally concluded that he's really not up to it. And they don't know how to tell the voters that. Well, I don't think they feel that it is the time to tell the voters yet. They've been through this incredibly bruising process uh, with the Labour Party losing its leader and Miliband, it's too strong to say running away, but essentially leaving so quickly left them with no effective transition process and has ended them up in this position. So I think that they are desperately trying to find ways to rebuild from within before they go and have this conversation because it's too hard. But it may be that the time is now right to start to think about how they can get rid of a man who almost certainly, I think, cannot lead them back into power. For the reasons that we were talking about earlier, the Tory party's weaknesses have been exposed. And there are two views about what the consequence of that might be. One is that it makes Corbyn's position more secure, 
because actually, for instance, the Labour Party for the first time has polled ahead of the Conservatives in one of the rolling polls about voting preferences. We know not to put too much weight in that, but it reassures the Corbynites that their man is not necessarily a loser. So it could shore him up. On the other hand, if people start to think that the 2020 election is there for the winning, they've got to get rid of him soon, haven't they, Helen? In principle, yes, but you've still got to answer the question about what the mechanism for doing that is. And it isn't clear how that can happen, given the way in which the leadership was won by Corbyn in the first place and the amount of support that he has from both with the members of the party and those who were entitled to vote. I think that there's another problem as well, and that is is the fact that the outcome of the EU referendum is unclear. Until that issue has played itself out, it's very difficult, I think, for either of the political parties to make any significant move. And in one sense, and I think that this is where Labour is at a disadvantage from the position it's got itself into in the EU referendum, the Tories' divisions about the EU are actually quite useful because they at least reflect the fact that there is division going on within the body politic amongst the voters about this question. Labour has just made itself irrelevant to that question because it's not allowed any kind of contest about whether it's a good thing or not from a centre-left point of view for Britain to be inside the European Union or not. And as Jackie Ashley said, they also have the problem that they have to find someone to replace Corbyn with. I don't think we're any nearer now than we were when we spoke to Jackie Ashley about knowing who that person might be. People pop up, they give speeches, they write articles in The Guardian, and on the circus moves. Nothing really sticks. Once we've had the EU referendum, if the decision is made by the opponents of Corbyn within the party that the time is right to remove him... Are they going to have to agree on a candidate? And if so, do you think that's possible, either of you? Because that seems to me to be the big barrier here, that there are two things they have to overcome, first of all, which is the mechanics of getting rid of him. But secondly, and we've seen it with Trump, you see it in every election, unless you can agree on who your candidate is, the candidate who has a certain number of votes sewn up will win. I think you're right, but I think the process point kills them from the get-go. There is no mechanism, there's no clear mechanism for them to take Corbyn out. And fine, if they can find a way to solve that. There's been a piece in the Times Red Box today. Uh, apparently, the Corbyn team has now ranked all of the uh, Labour members according to whether they're supportive or non-supportive. It may be complete rubbish, it may be completely made up. But what is very interesting is when you look at the list, how split they are. They're all over the pitch. There are different groupings, there are different factions. There is no clear candidate who has come forward yet who can actually gather broad support across the parliamentary party and then beyond the parliamentary party into the members because as Helen was saying this is an interesting process that you have to be able to carry all of the constituencies within parliament and outside of parliament to get the leadership. And are we right to think that as sort of professional commentators or people who have a professional interest in politics we do look at how Corbyn performs in the Commons. And, and if you watch it, it is terrible. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's any other word for it. It's, it's the kind of thing that you think, well, if everybody was watching this, I think he would be finished. But as we heard when we talked to voters who have far more important things to do than to watch BBC Parliament, they aren't watching it. Are we, are we wrong to think that that really matters? I mean, I can't get away from the thought that you cannot be leader of the opposition and perform the way he performs week in, week out in Parliament in ways that seem to reveal not just sort of rhetorical failings, but it's a bit like what Finbar was saying about Donald Trump. You hear the emptiness behind the answers, and it's terrifying. And yet, 
what the voters are looking for is mood music, a sense of the kind of guy he is. And a lot of people still think that he is the kind of anti-politician politician. Are we right or wrong to think that what a leader of the opposition does in Parliament matters? I think that it matters, but not in terms of how the voters react to it. It matters because the people, as you said earlier, who work with him see it. And the effect on them is entirely demoralising. It means that they have very little energy that they bring to the table in terms of going out and putting on a public face of the Labour Party. And it's not possible, I think, for anybody to win a general election if the people around that leader have got no confidence that they want this person to be Prime Minister. And Finbar, is there any possibility that he might get any better? So we're six months in... One or two people say give the man time, politics, it's not like football management, you don't get rid of someone after a run of dodgy results, he's in it for the long haul, 2020 is a long way off and so on. <laughs> is, is there anything to that? Might he grow in the job if he hasn't so far? I don't think he actually believes he needs to grow in the job. I think he wants to say that there should be a different way to present yourself and comport yourself uh, within this arena and I think he's wrong. I think there is a need for him to be scoring easy points when they're there, like the IDS resignation, which he didn't comment on. He needs to be able to have steel when he comes across like a slightly bumbling professor, with apologies to all in the room. But there's a moment where I think he believes his own rhetoric to a fault, and so he doesn't see the need to change. Finally, someone who I think performed slightly better this week is his shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, who... His reputation, I think, has changed over the last six months. I think most people's view of Corbyn is the same as it was six months ago. I think some people have changed their view of McDonald. He's become, in some people's eyes, a more flexible and more pragmatic figure than they expected. And he's also made an effort, which Corbyn hasn't, to try and work out what lines of attack might work. I still think he made a big mistake this week. I think both of them did by calling for Osborne to resign, because I think that's just absurd. Um, but Helen, do you think that McDonnell might actually be the person who keeps the Corbyn ship afloat? I think he's already keeping the ship afloat and he's almost certainly responsible for what little quality that there is in Corbyn's parliamentary performance. I think we shouldn't forget, though, that his liabilities have not gone away and his liabilities in terms of his past history, not least in relation to supporting the IRA, are even more problematic than um, Corbyn's are. So at any point in which McDonnell starts to become a significant threat to the Conservatives, then I think that McDonnell's going to be pushed right back on the defensive again and into a place that it's going to be very difficult to get out of. Thank you to Helen and to Finbar, to our special guest, Jim Nochty, and to our production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Next week, we're going to be talking about another fascinating aspect of the current American presidential election, the partisan battle over who gets to nominate Antonin Scalia's replacement on the Supreme Court, especially now that President Obama has made his pick. We'll be joined by political commentator and legal scholar Kimmy Lynn King to help us make sense of the fights going on between Republicans and Democrats, between the Senate and the White House, between the law and politics. Do please join us then and do visit our website at Polis Election Podcast for blogs, additional material and much more. My name is David Runciman and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast, Election.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com